Ted Bundy's four-year reign of terror that led to the deaths of dozens of women is well-documented. His first confirmed murders started in Washington State in 1974 and ended with his arrest and eventual execution in Florida with a couple of wild jailbreaks in between. Now, this isn't that story. Today, we want to go back to the beginning when he was just a kid and talk about his possible connection to three cold cases from the 1960s that have never been solved to this day. Now, even serial killers have to start somewhere. So let's walk through these cases and you be the judge. Is Ted the key to solving these mysteries? I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. So I think we need to start with a bizarre incident that happened when Ted was three years old. Now, don't worry. We're not here to recreate a David Copperfield-like story and begin with the beginning of his life when Ted was born. Although that is an interesting story, given the fact that there has been plenty of unconfirmed but like totally believable talk that he's the product of incest between his grandfather and his daughter, the grandfather's daughter, not Ted's. This is getting so confusing. The woman who Ted believed was his sister and his grandparents were his parents until he learned the truth sometime in the 1960s, which actually explains a lot if it's true. But again, we're not going to dive too deep into those waters. But okay, this is the event I want you to hear because I think it supports the theory that Ted was a killer long before he admitted it. At three years old, Ted was living with his biological family in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Cowell family. That was his grandparents slash parents and his mother slash sister and his aunt slash other sister. Okay, sorry. So as to keep this as simple as possible, from now on, just know I'm going to be referring to these people as they actually were. His mother was his mother, not his sister, and so on and so on. Jeez, is it any wonder that Ted was so messed up? All right. Anyway, as the story goes, one morning, Ted's aunt wakes up to find butcher knives in bed with her and a three-year-old Ted smiling next to her. He freaking lifted her sheets while she was sleeping and put a bunch of knives next to her, then gleefully waited for her to find them. Was she actually hurt? No. Was she traumatized for life, especially considering the kind of monster he went on to become? Yeah. Though even from that age, it was clear something was very wrong with this kid. Now, after that incident, Ted's mother moved him to Tacoma, Washington, where she eventually met Johnny Bundy, who then adopted Ted, giving him his now infamous last name. (laughs) Incidentally, I have a bizarre connection to the Bundy family. My stepmother is a Bundy also from the Pacific Northwest, and Johnny is some sort of cousin. So growing up with that last name in like my modern family tree was interesting, to say the least. But I'm going off on a tangent, and I really want to make this connection between the knife thing at three years old and something that might have happened when Ted was 14. And it all has to do with our very first cold case, that of eight-year-old Anne Marie Burr. She disappeared from her home in Tacoma on one rainy night in 1961. The last time her mother saw her alive was around midnight on August 30th. Now, Anne-Marie was one of four children, and that night her younger sister, three-year-old Mary, was crying, so she brought her into her parents' bedroom and went back to bed. She shared a room with her, but her mother thought she was in bed, but by 5 a.m., Mary was crying again, so Beverly, her mother, woke up to go into the room only to find that her other daughter, Anne Marie, was gone. 
Now, the only evidence that someone else had been there was a bench pulled up outside the open window and a teenage-sized sneaker print in plain view on top of it. Now, author Anne Rule, who was also Ted's former co-worker at a freaking suicide hotline, I hope you know this story because if not, we need to talk about it. But yes, they worked together at the suicide hotline and they were friends. She wrote a book about that relationship and his eventual crimes called The Stranger Beside Me. Now, she was the first to connect Ted with Anne-Marie Burr in that book. And I'll tell you more about why and how she made that connection originally. But first, let's continue with this case based on the research done by author Rebecca Morris in her book, Ted and Anne, The Mystery of a Missing Child and Her Neighbor, Ted Bundy, which title pretty much says it all. Okay, so credit given, let's get deeper into this. At that time in 1961, Ted was a paper boy and a peeping Tom and a killer of small animals, of course. And remember, he'd already been showing those psychopathic traits at three years old. Eleven years later, by age 14, he'd escalated to animals. So knowing what we do about these kinds of killers, how they sort of graduate to bigger game. And I say game because Ted has been described as a stalker hunter many times, even describing himself that way. So given all that, an eight-year-old girl would be the next step for him. Now, he wasn't the Burr's paper boy, but he did live about three miles away, and his uncle, who he often visited, lived much closer to the Burr family. So according to Rebecca Morris's research, she found a couple of people who said It went even deeper than that. Anne-Marie and Ted did know each other and that Anne sometimes helped him get his newspapers. And furthermore, Anne idolized him and followed Ted around. It's not so hard to imagine him sneaking through an unlocked window and luring his little friend out of the house one dark night, is it? Though the search for Anne-Marie was the largest in the history of Tacoma at the time, but the little girl was never found, and she still hasn't been found to this day. But that doesn't mean she's not close by the place where she disappeared. According to Rebecca Morris, one of the complications for the search was that their home was very close to the University of Puget Sound campus, and there were seven buildings under construction that day. Construction sites as we know, offer convenient places to hide a body. And even Amory's father and brother believe she might be in one of them. Again, according to Morris's book, they went back to the house and told the police, you've got to go up there and look at those construction sites because there are all these ditches. And in fact, he and his brother had seen a teenager standing at one of the ditches, kind of kicking the dirt in with his feet. And they waited a few days. And by the time the police went to the campus, everything was paved over. All right. So here's why Ted's former friend, author Anne Rule, believed that Anne Marie was Ted's first victim. In a jailhouse interview with Robert Keppel, Ted said something like, When a serial killer is around 15, a first murder is a mystical, exciting, intense experience. I liken this to, like, doing drugs for the first time. I hear. Like, an addict is always trying to chase that high. Well, Ted also said that the first crime is a special memory that you want to keep all to yourself. And interestingly, that's a sentiment the killer Israel Keys talked about in the same way. And Ted Bundy was one of his heroes. But Ted did tell a story, hypothetically, mind you, of his very first crime, hypothetically, in his words, luring a little girl out of her house, taking her to the orchard next door to assault her, and then leaving her in a nearby ditch. 
Exactly what happened to Anne-Marie, no doubt. But whether he heard about that case since he lived in the area at the time or if he was actually responsible for it, that's still a mystery. But just before he was executed in 1989, Ted met with a detective working Anne-Marie's case and he wouldn't admit to the murder. But in that one instance, the man said he actually showed a glimmer of guilt and emotion. (laughs) Not something he did with any of his other victims. And yet another woman at the same age who grew up in the same area with Ted and Anne-Marie believes he is the one who did it. Here's why. She had a personal brush with him, and it's documented in Rebecca Morris's book. So listen to this. He came up behind me one day and grabbed my shirt up on my shoulder and said, come on, little sister, I want to show you something. She tried to pull away, but he kept trying to force her to go with him. She said, he grabbed my shoulder really hard, and my brother saw him and came running halfway across the whole neighborhood, jumped on Ted's back, knocked him onto the ground, and then got up on top of him and just pummeled him and said, you keep your hands off my sister. Fortunately for her, that's as far as it went. But another former classmate of Ted's emailed Ann Rule to tell her about a time Ted asked her, this classmate, if she wanted to see where he had hidden a body. Now, of course, all of this is circumstantial, which is why they were never able to charge him or anyone. But the fact that there was a notorious serial killer in the making hanging around the area at the same time a little girl goes missing, I mean... It's just too much of a coincidence, don't you think? I mean, Anne-Marie's mother believed it too. She actually wrote to Ted, begging him to tell them what he did to her daughter. And part of her letter reads like this. I feel your first murder was our Anne-Marie Burr. The bench from the backyard was used to climb into the living room. The orchard next door was a dark setting for murder. What did you do with the tiny body? Oh, God. Heartbreaking. He wrote back to her and denied everything. But knowing what we do about him, his denial is just, it's such a blatant lie. So listen to this. He said, At the time, I was a normal 14-year-old boy. I did not wander the streets late at night. I did not steal cars. I had absolutely no desire to harm anyone. I was just an average kid. (laughs) Yeah, right, Ted. So get this, before he turned 18, he was arrested twice on suspicion of stealing cars, but the details were wiped from his record after he turned 18. So what do you think? Now, our next cold case jumps ahead to Ted's early college years after he left the University of Puget Sound and was starting at the University of Washington in Seattle. And how fitting would it have been for him to go to school on the same Puget Sound campus where he possibly hid the body of Anne Marie? But by this time, he was getting better at hiding his true self with what he called his mask of sanity. But as we all know, that mask slipped a lot. And in the cold case attack on two flight attendants in Seattle in 1966, I think you'll agree that the circumstances sound very similar to Ted's M.O. So it was just before dawn on June 23rd, 1966, in the Queen Anne Hill neighborhood of Seattle. Inside the small basement apartment, roommates Lisa Wick and Lonnie Trumbull were fast asleep. The two girls were both 20 years old, originally from Portland, Oregon, and both brand new flight attendants just out of training for United Airlines. A third roommate, Joyce Bow, the same age and also a flight attendant, wasn't home. She didn't come back until later that morning around 9.30, and that is when she found the front door unlocked and a gruesome scene in the bedrooms. 
Her roommates were in their blood-soaked beds, and around them, blood still dripped down the walls. According to the Seattle Times, Joyce ran upstairs to the apartment manager, screaming, My friends are killed. We need help. It was much later that the police determined both girls had been brutally bludgeoned with a piece of wood three inches square and 18 inches long, which was found tossed in a vacant lot next to the apartment building. So with the exception of the sexual assault, which this case did not have, those the girls were not sexually assaulted. But aside from that, this attack is remarkably similar to the murderous spree Ted would later go on to commit at the Chi Omega sorority house in Florida 12 years later in 1978, even right down to the murder weapon, which in the sorority house case was a piece of firewood. Lumber, firewood, come on. Thankfully, in the attack on the flight attendants, there was one survivor, Lisa Wick. She survived, but with permanent brain injuries. And possibly the only reason she made it through and her roommate Lonnie didn't was because Lisa was sleeping with those big rollers in her hair. You know what I mean? And they might have served to sort of cushion the blows just slightly enough to keep her alive. So if that's not a reason to set your hair at night, ladies, I don't know what is. But where was Ted at the time? How might he have crossed paths with these two unfortunate girls? Well, some reports say he worked at the neighborhood Safeway, the same supermarket the girls must have stopped into several times a week. But other reports say he didn't work there until two years later. But regardless, do you think it was him? I mean, it's not hard to see the obvious connection between his confirmed well-documented, brutal style of, of attack that he would go on to further develop over the years. So was this the night he took on the challenge of killing two victims at once using the same murder weapon we know he used later? Now, this case is still unsolved, but while fingerprints at the scene don't match his, according to Seattle's KRO7 News, investigators say many people, including a news photographer, were allowed into the crime scene and apparently... That was like a common practice in 1966. So you can imagine that the scene was sort of a jumble of fingerprints, and it's entirely possible that it was completely contaminated. And if Ted was there, and he did leave fingerprints, which he might not have, they could be lost forever. As recently as 2018, detectives still consider Bundy to be a prime suspect in this case, but it's never been solved. Another favorite suspect at the time was their landlord's son. He committed suicide not long after the attack, and newspaper clippings about it were found in his things. As for the surviving roommate, Lisa, she moved back to Portland and eventually went back to work for United and got married. So again, I have to ask, what do you think? Could Ted have been responsible for this heinous thing? And before you answer that, let me give you one more piece of information. Lisa herself reportedly wrote to author Anne Rule to tell her that she believed Ted was her attacker, and even just looking at a picture of him or attempting to read Anne's book about him made her physically, violently ill and frightened. Interestingly, though, at the time, Lisa described a totally different-looking man who seemed older than Ted would have been. She described a man in his 30s, not 19, like Ted was at the time, and blonde, not dark-haired like he was. But that said, the lights were off, and it was dark in her room, and she's handling this traumatic attack. So is it possible that over the years, she might have gotten a better idea of who her attacker really was? 
Plus, he was known to wear a nylon stocking over his head and face, among, you know, other types of disguises. And maybe in a glimmer of light, it might have made him look like an older man with lighter hair. What do you think? Okay, now we're going to fast forward three years to our next cold case, the murders of two 19-year-old college students in New Jersey in 1969, Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. Now, speculation about Bundy's involvement in this unsolved case has been debated for decades. So here's what we know, and much of this information is based on the research author Christian Barth compiled in his book, The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery. So you might want to pick that up. On Friday, May 30th, 1969, the girls left Ocean City, New Jersey. They were headed for Susan's family's house near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. After a visit with them, they were planning to go on to North Carolina for her brother's college graduation, according to the Philly Voice. Now, they were traveling in Susan's light blue Chevy Impala convertible. On the way out of New Jersey, they stopped for breakfast around 5 a.m. at the Summers Point Diner in Egg Harbor Township, but they would never make it out of New Jersey. Their lives ended only two miles away, less than an hour later. When they didn't show up in Harrisburg, no one knew what could have happened to them. It was as if they dropped off the face of the earth, but bizarrely, cruelly, only hours after they left the diner, a trooper came across Susan's convertible, empty and presumably abandoned, on the side of the Garden State Parkway, and the car was towed. It would be three more days before the girls' bodies were found, only about 200 yards away from the place where their car was left, deep behind the tree line. Susan was naked when they found her, but according to previously unreleased police reports detailed in Christian Barth's book, her neck was either tied to a tree with her bra or her bra was tied into her hair in some way. It's unclear which was accurate, but the takeaway is that the killer did something bizarre with her bra and stacked the rest of the clothes near her body, a fact the police kept quiet in hopes of using it to identify real confession, which they never got from anyone. Elizabeth was about 10 feet away. She was still wearing her clothes, but she was missing her underwear. She was also still wearing her jewelry, something the police also kept quiet, but they used that as a fact to rule out robbery as a possible, you know, reason for the murders. Now, both girls were stabbed, possibly with a knife, maybe something else with a sharp point, and they'd both been brutally beaten, then partially covered with brush. By the time their bodies were found, the time and animal activity had left them decomposed to the point that the medical examiner couldn't say for sure if either of the girls were also raped. Although, given the condition of Susan's body, she was naked, the answer was probably yes. And as psychologists point out, for most killers, the act of murder itself is sexually gratifying. So there's that. Now, around this same time, Ted Bundy had dropped out of Temple University in Philadelphia. Yes, he was there. He'd only been enrolled for a semester, and he may have been tooling around in Ocean Beach for Memorial Day, the same time the girls were there. Ocean Beach was a place he was familiar with. Growing up, his grandfather, possibly actually his biological father, owned a home there, which he visited as a kid. And what better place for a developing sexual sadist than a beach on a busy summer holiday? All those bikinis. And before we get into those connections, you have to hear another strange fact that Christian Barth unearthed. And this is word for word from his research because it's so bizarre, I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm going to quote here. 
Detectives with the New Jersey State Police Major Crime Unit later questioned three young men from Pennsylvania who'd pulled over onto the shoulder to sleep near milepost 31.9 after they'd run out of gas at around 4.30 a.m. When they woke up approximately three hours later, the young men noticed Susan's unoccupied Chevrolet convertible parked on the shoulder approximately 100 yards in front of them. What the... So was the attack happening only yards away as they slept? I am sorry, but how very Ted Bundy-like to take on the thrilling challenge of killing these girls while two people were asleep in a car 200 yards away. And let's think about this. What would make the girls pull over in the first place? Maybe a cute guy with car trouble on the side of the road? A well-known Ted Bundy ploy to lure his victims? And according to Christian Barth, these girls came from affluent homes. They were very sheltered and trusting. So as he said, with the right approach, they could be duped. Now, obviously, other suspects have been considered in this cold case, and we'll get into those in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about a few of the other connections between Bundy and the murder of these two college girls. And just as a reminder, because I know we've covered a lot of ground here, but the murder of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry happened in 1969. Three years earlier, in 1966, the two flight attendants were attacked in Seattle, and five years before that is when little Anne-Marie Burr went missing. In each case, Ted was known to be in the area, probably in the case of the Ocean City, uh, New Jersey murder. But one of the arguments against Ted being the killer of Susan and Elizabeth is the idea that he wasn't fully developed as a killer at this time. And to take on two victims at once would require a pretty experienced killer. But remember that if he was responsible for the attack on the flight attendants in Seattle, then he would have already had that experience under his belt, you know, so to speak. And the added thrill of an attack in broad daylight close to a busy road might have been exactly what he was craving in his sick, sick soul. So while you consider that, let me give you a few other interesting facts. So Bundy had many death row conversations with a psychologist in which he would talk about himself in the third person. That's that's fun. And in those conversations, he referred to possible victims in Ocean City. As a guest on an episode of podcaster Kevin Moore's The True Crime Show, Christian Barth brought up a few statements Bundy made about his activities in Ocean City in 1969. Quote, a couple of times he said something to the effect of he didn't have a lot to do. He had just finished school, Temple University. It was 1969, so he went to the Jersey Shore, hung out on the beach and met a couple of girls, and it wound up being the first time that he did it. Hello? But, of course, knowing he's a pathological liar, based on the other cases and statements he made, it could have been closer to the second or the third time he did it, depending on what you believe. But before you make up your mind, listen to this. In 1989, days away from his execution, Ted brought up 1969 Ocean City again to criminologist Dorothy Lewis. To her, he said, in the spring, I went to Ocean City and I was hanging out at the beach and looking at the young women, trailing them around. I felt compelled to act out this vision. I was just stalking around the downtown area, this small resort community, and I saw a young woman walking along. I didn't actually kill someone this time, but I really, for the first time, approached a victim, spoke to her, tried to abduct her, and she escaped. But that was frightening in its own way. I know that in Ocean City, I realized 
realized just how inept I was. And so that made me more cautious. And so I didn't do that again for a long time because it scared me. It really scared me. Huh. More lies. Or was that him hinting at the truth? Or was it the truth? And he had nothing to do with the Garden State Parkway murders or the other two cases. I mean, I don't know. So let's say Bundy didn't have anything to do with the girls' deaths. Then who did? One suspect has long been another serial killer by the name of Gerald Eugene Stano. He killed at least 22 women and possibly as many as 41 between 1969 and 1980. He was mainly active in New Jersey, Florida, and Pennsylvania. And weirdly, get this, he was also on death row in Florida while Bundy was there. They were like in the same cell block. But he was executed nine years after Bundy was. And... He actually confessed to killing Susan and Elizabeth, but wait, just before, hold on. He actually retracted that confession. He was known as a serial confessor, and he didn't have all the details about the way the bodies were found. I mean, you and I have more details right now than this guy did back then, so. Police even got the impression that someone had fed him some information about it. Now, all of this led police to doubt that he really was involved. So as Christian Barth said, did the two prisoners actually talk about this crime? I mean, is that what motivated him to confess to it and add it to his own, you know, notoriety? Well, let's assume that the police were right and someone was giving Gerald information about the murders. And let's just say if it wasn't Bundy, then who? Well, as it turns out, there's another option. And how about this for another strange coincidence? Gerald was old friends with the very first person police suspected of this crime, a guy named Mark Thomas. He got on police radar with an anonymous tip, and when he answered questions about it on a polygraph, his responses were undetermined. No, who knows? Truth or lie? Who knows? But whether or not he was lying about his involvement, it, he's not a good guy. He went on to become a real mover and shaker with the Pennsylvania Ku Klux Klan and was no doubt responsible for plenty of other tragedies in his time. And then there was one more possible suspect in these murders, a real POS named Ronnie Walden. According to Christian Barth's research, Ronnie was a drifter originally from Georgia who ended up in New Jersey in 1969. And here is a very incriminating fact against him. His watch was found near the murder scene. It was identified by a woman who had actually been on a date with him and saw the watch on his wrist shortly before the murders. Around the time the girls were killed, Ronnie stole a car and fled to Colorado, where he was arrested for grand theft. And and yet another bizarre coincidence, as Christian Barth pointed this out, that Ronnie was held at the same jail in the same cell that Bundy would later escape from in 1977. That was the time he cut a hole in the ceiling of his cell and basically walked out the door of the prison because he looked so, quote, normal, the staff thought he was someone's lawyer. But the watch being found near the crime scene could be chalked up to a drifter sleeping in the woods that just happened to become a crime scene later. And when he was questioned about the murders, he passed the polygraph and he was cleared, even though they found a partial print of his on the girl's car. But his life also ended in 1989, the same year Bundy met his fate in the Florida electric chair. I mean, this is just nothing but bizarre, creepy coincidences in this story. Am I right? But in Ronnie's case, he took his own life in prison. He actually managed to shoot himself with a contraband gun. 
I can tell you that Elizabeth Perry's mother is leaning toward Ted Bundy as her daughter's murderer. And when he was executed, she told reporters she felt some measure of closure, even though he never fully admitted his involvement. Others say that among other reasons, Ted probably wasn't involved because it didn't fit his typical style. The girls were stabbed, and he was known for strangling and bludgeoning his victims to death. They were also left partially covered with brush in the woods where they died, and he liked to keep his victims around to do unspeakable things to their bodies afterwards. But in 1975, his steady girlfriend found a knife and a hatchet in his car, which led to her reporting him to authorities, if you remember this, who they famously blew her off, resulting in even more deaths. But I mention it because nothing is out of the question with Bundy. And remember that even at age three, he clearly had a fascination with knives, even leaving them in his aunt's bed. So to me, how they died is not necessarily a reason why it could not have been him. As far as leaving the bodies there, well, What were his options? He could have put them in his car and taken them with him. I mean, doubtful. He almost had to leave them there. But this is still an open case and police still want to know who did it. By the end of his life, Bundy confessed to 36 murders, but he famously hinted that he might be responsible for more than 100 deaths. With that in mind, I'd say he lost control of his sanity much earlier than 1974, even though for years it was thought that his first attempted murder was Karen Sparks in Seattle on January 4th, 1974. Luckily, she survived, probably because she lived with three male roommates and one of them talked in his sleep and spooked Ted before he could finish what he started. In that attack, she was beaten and violated with a metal rod and left for dead before her roommates wondered why she hadn't come out of her room hours later and found her. Incidentally, she was also living in a basement apartment when she was attacked. Just like the flight attendants, just like plenty of other victims that would come in future years. She was in a coma for 10 days, and when she woke up, mercifully, she could not remember what happened. Although she did lose part of her hearing and vision, but she was eventually able to go on and lead a happy life. Now, weeks later, after her attack, Ted kidnapped and murdered Linda Ann Healy in Seattle. She was a college senior, and she announced uh, local ski reports for a radio station. She disappeared from her room in the middle of the night. At first, her roommates didn't even know anything was wrong. It wasn't until she didn't show up for work that morning that they did a more extensive search of her room. And that's when they found her nightgown hanging in the closet with blood around the neckline and blood on her pillowcase. But her bed had been made. The only thing missing from her room were the clothes she'd been wearing the day before, her backpack, and a pink satin pillowcase, which is just, I mean, let's think about this, such a bone-chilling fact to imagine Bundy actually redressing her in her clothes and making her bed while her roommate slept down the hall completely unaware that anything was wrong. Ugh. A year later, in 1975, her skull was found in an area known as the Issaquah Alps, Taylor Mountain, outside of Seattle. And that makes her his first confirmed murder victim. Now, Ted is one of America's most notorious killers, and I can see how it would be easy to blame him for all kinds of unsolved cases. But what do you think about the three cold cases you heard about today? Are the coincidences just a little too convenient? Is it possible that he was born to kill and he started doing what he loved as a teenager and not at 27? And if that's true, then it's more than likely that he didn't put years between these murders, and these are only the beginning of the many cold cases that Ted's responsible 
responsible for, not to mention the victims that have never been found. So all before his first confirmed murder of Linda Healy in 1974. But what do you think? Let us know in the comments. And if you like getting twice the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to Chris and I to have you subscribe and join us every Wednesday for a new recap. You can also watch the show on YouTube or Facebook every week. And if you would do us the huge favor of leaving a five-star review and comment, it would help us spread the word about the show. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe.